Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Brady Finner, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. And today is Friday, October the 22nd, and this next hour we study the inspired and true Word of God and pray Psalm 139. This is a well-known psalm, a psalm that I have used to affirm the, the validity of life from the beginning until the end. For you know my inward parts, the psalmist writes. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. What a, a, what a source of hope for our world today. A joy for you to know that the Lord knows you and has made you as his creation. And today we get the full meal deal of God's care for each one of us and you, our listeners, knowing that the Lord knows you in everywhere, every way, excuse me, on account of Christ. And today the gifts are ready, ready for you. Special thanks to our friends at, at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us to be strengthened by God's Word, we, ha we welcome back with us Reverend Dr. Phil Boo, who serves St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Pastor Boo, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I'm always excited to be in the Word with you guys. Pastor Boo, tell me what's going on for you, uh, your family, and the work of the saints at St. John, which is almost in Iowa, in South Dakota, and Minnesota, one of the distinctive places, I think, in um, in Minnesota, for sure. So what's Absolutely. going on? Absolutely. Right here in the corner, which reminds me a lot of home. I, I grew up in an area of North Carolina, which was right on the border of Tennessee and Georgia. So I uh, feel a little bit at home here. Things are wonderful. The weather's starting to cool down a little bit. Harvest is going on. So um, all those wonderful opportunities and challenges that come along with that. Being fairly new to Laverne, I've only been here a year now. I uh, got to go to my very first uh, pastor's conference, which was a, a nice event, and finally got to meet the DP and all those good things. And so it's been, uh, it's been great. I, I'm starting to finally feel settled here. And that's that's a reminder to our listeners that um, each uh, each of the churches and pastors and so forth are part of a district in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and there we have a district president who is the we call it the ecclesiastical supervisor. And for Minnesota South, which is where Pastor Boo is, is Doctor uh, Pastor Reverend Doctor Lucas Woodford, and for my district is Reverend. Dr. Uh, Don Fondow, two wonderful godly men who have a job that they they could they could work all day every day for the rest of their lives and still not get enough done. And so continue to pray for our district presidents, our districts, and those who serve as they serve us in ways that many times we don't know. Plus, at pastors conferences, all the pastors think they have to introduce themselves and say hi to them, so they're busy there too, right? <laughs> That's right. I think I was I stood in line for a little bit. <laughs> Very good. So, Pastor, as we're looking at Psalm 139, how we're trying to do this is, first of all, we, we take a break between each book. For us, for our listeners, we just finished Leviticus, and now uh, we're going through the Psalms. And on Monday, we will begin our study of Ecclesiastes, which is going to be a lot of fun. Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer is going to be introducing Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And, and for us, we take a break, we take a step back to pray. 
And when we pray, when we read a psalm, we're praying. And so that's how we want to start our time, to look at Psalm 139, first going through the whole thing, and then coming back and looking at the riches that there are within, especially as we see Christ. So Psalm 139, I will read this, we'll be praying this and ending with the Gloria Patri. Psalm 139. O Lord Yahweh, you search me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord Yahweh, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. For where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them. The days that you formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Pastor, Psalm 139 is a very well-known psalm, a psalm that uh, we've used. I know I've used quite a bit, especially when you're working with somebody who who their identity, maybe they question, wonder if they're loved or wonder if they're alone. Give us, what. how do you want to start us off with intro and background to this wonderful psalm? Well, Psalm, you're right. Psalm 139 is known as sort of this crown of all the psalms because it speaks so much about the attributes of our God, but it also tells us a lot about our relationship with God. And I would say overall, it's a psalm of praise, but it has these great elements of lament. And there's even petitions in it sort toward the end. There's a, an imprecatory sense at the end, which we'll cover. And so we see, we see this um, wonderful diversity of, of the types of psalms throughout the Bible, and they all kind of culminate in this wonderful uh, Psalm 139. Now, the psalm's from David. Uh, we don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm. And actually, there's, I guess, a little bit of debate on whether it, it is David's psalm at all. Um, the reason there is is because in the Septuagint, and that's, of course, the, 
the Greek version of the Old Testament, to put it succinctly. Um, the Psalms ascribed, or at least parts of it maybe, uh, to Zechariah during the exile of the Jews and the captivity in Babylon. And then some think, well, maybe just Zechariah contributed to it. But there's good evidence in the Hebrew titles that, that David wrote this psalm. And I, I think that's what we're going to go with because the psalm speaks so personally. Um, it's, it's, you, can, you can almost hear David in this psalm for all the things that he had gone through, all the, the, the weight of the mantle of, of God's role for him being on his shoulders. And so David isn't praying on the behalf of other people. It isn't some collective prayer. It's this personal interaction with God. You began this time with praying this psalm as opposed to just reading it. And I think that's what you have to do with, with all the psalms. I mean, you have to meditate upon them. Put yourself, in, in this case, in the position of David and when he says things like me and I and my and mine, then make those pronouns your pronouns and, and see what happens when you make his words your words. So this very personal nature of the psalm gives us a, a great opportunity to, to examine ourselves before God, examine our condition before God's all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful nature. And, and that's what you're going to see this, this being uh, structured around. He's praising Yahweh for his attributes of omniscience, which is his all-knowingness, his omnipresence, the fact that he's ubiquitous everywhere, and then his omnipotence as it all culminates together in how God has his hand in the creation of life. Just, just an amazing psalm. No wonder it's uh, so, so popular. And that's I like how you're putting that because we can kind of we can get lost in the weeds with the Psalms, trying to determine the poetic structure, looking for the central point, um, all of that. Well, we forget that David was a real person <laughs> and he was right. living in the real world and a very personal um, proclamation and prayer. And like you said, there's there's portions of lament, but then there's portions of just praise for the Lord being who he is and how he has blessed David and how he has created David to be his own child. And so that's a good reminder for us that I think this Psalm, and I want to ask you further throughout our time, this Psalm is a very um, great Psalm for us to pray all the time. But specifically when you have that question mark of, you know, am I alone? Uh, what am I doing? What value do I have? Or what's the value of other people? I think Psalm 139 captures that. Um, I'll ask at the beginning, Pastor, when is a good time to pray Psalm 139? I think what Psalm 139 is a prayer that recognizes your place before God and recognizes the power of God. So whenever you feel as though you are um, so distant from God that he could never possibly never possibly have anything to do with you or love you or protect you, then you pray this psalm and you get this sense that not only is God so powerful that he can do anything for you, not only is he so all-knowing that he can search even the depths of your heart, but he's also omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's before you and behind you, and you have access to God just as he has, of course, access to you. And I think it connects us with God in a way that's very, very personal. You know, we in the Lutheran faith, and rightly so, focus a lot on the community uh, relationship that we have with God. 
And and we do that as a, I think, a reaction to American evangelical thought that really puts a lot of focus on sort of me and Jesus and personal relationships with God. Um, When we do that, though, we shouldn't, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I think 139 reminds um, us communal Christians who recognize that God has called us into a community, but this also reminds us that he is indeed a God for you, that Jesus died for you in the same way that God brought you into this world individually. So let's hear more about this God that you speak of and beginning in verses one through three, one through three. And David prays, O Lord Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Right there, we learn a lot about God and what he knows about us. What does it tell us? I mean, it's so dense. I mean, really, the first six verses are dealing with the omniscience of God. Uh, God knows all things. There's nothing hidden from his sight, past, present, or future. God knows all things. And so this will continue, but it's good to stop here because, yeah, there's so much in there. In fact, if there has to be a theme, and I think there is to the psalm, it's going to be this very first verse. It is, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And he brings this same thought up at the very end, too. So God can see even what we cannot. We talk about you know knowing the faith of others, how it's invisible to us, that we can't know other people's hearts. We only know, you know what they tell us and how they behave. Well, God's not limited by just the things we say or the things that we do. He knows ourselves, and he knows all people um, completely, completely, and I like to say utterly known by God. Just to add this emphasis that God's knowledge of us is so deep that he knows us better than we know ourselves. And, And as we begin the whole psalm, I think what comes up again and again is, are these words of a man who's praising God, or are these laments of a man who doesn't want to be seen by God, who wants to hide from God? Um, Basically, the question that's being asked is, is this law or gospel? Right, right. When, when, when When the scriptures say, or when David says here, you search me and know me, you know me when I sit down, when I get up, my thoughts from afar, and all this stuff, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And, and I think about in confirmation, and I actually don't do this for the same reason, for, but there seems to be an exercise that a lot of pastors do, and they find some value in it, where they give a list of Bible verses, and they're trying to teach law and gospel, and they have the kids say, all right, write an L next to the verses that are law, and write a, a G next to the verses that are gospel. And of course, law are those verses that shows us our sins, and gospel are those verses that shows us our Savior. And, and then you get to a verse that's something like Jesus in Matthew 28 that says, I am with you always until the end of the age. And you have some kid put law and you go, no, 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 that's gospel. You know, Jesus is with you. And the kid <laughs> reveals to you, I don't like the idea that Jesus is with me all the time. Right. Because he knows that there are times when he would rather God not know what he's doing or thinking. 
And so there's part of this, I think, that the verses come off as as maybe even lament. But I think it's more accurate to say that whether this is galar gospel or lament or praise, it, it depends on how the Holy Spirit is applying this word to you. So if someone is secure in their sin, the Holy Spirit may take these verses to convict that person into recognizing that God knows even our deepest thoughts and sins. And on the other hand, if someone is already convicted in their sin, they recognize the forgiveness they have from God, and they recognize how much they need God to live the way he wants them to live, well, then it's gospel knowing that God is always with them. So I think that there's sort of that element here, too. And that's that's a good point. I do remember, because there's different times in our lives that this operates where you're very comforted to know that God knows everything about me. Because when you have somebody that knows you in and out, there's a great comfort that one, that that person understands, like, I don't want to go to that restaurant, or I don't like those kind of gatherings or whatever it might be. And then at the same time, they know all this about you, but yet they still choose to be around you. So there's this, there's that understanding of, you know, me insert me, um, you know, when I sit down, you know, when I rise up that, yeah, that can be quite terrifying. Just think about that. God knows everything you've ever done and thought, Lord have mercy. But yet it still says that he wants to be with us, which would point us once again to that gospel aspect. Anything else that you want to highlight one through three? Well, yeah, actually, I just do want to bring one more thing. You mentioned the the thoughts, the language of sitting down and rising up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it gives us this casual language of just the things you do every day. You know, when I'm sitting down, when I'm getting up in the morning, you search out my path and all that sort of thing. It kind of reminds me of Deuteronomy 6, where, you know, we're supposed to teach the children of God's commands. And we talk about them when we're sitting at home and walking down the road. And when we lie down and when we get up, you know, God is the God of our ordinary lives. He's there, not just when we're in worship, receiving his gifts, but also with us when we're going about our daily lives. And um, I also think it's kind of interesting when he gets to the point where it says, you search out my path and my lying down. I dug into that a little bit because some of the other versions will say different things. And I've uh, come to see that the word searched out there actually refers to winnowing, taking a process where you take grain and it's kind of shaken or you blow air over it to separate the chaff from the grain, which is then thrown out. So we get this sense that God has you know, sifted through everything that we think, do, or say, and yet he still knows us. And this is where this gets affirmed in Psalm 121, where it says, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. You know, it doesn't say when you're at top of the mountain or when you are right. winning that football game. It's the ordinary things that he is willing to be with you. Because you know what? Not many people are really willing to be with you in those ordinary times. And those are the ones who love you. They're like, Oh, that, you know, that Pastor Finner, and he's kind of boring. I don't want to be with him right now. But the Lord still yeah. is willing to be with us. So, yeah, I love, I love that thought. <laughs> so let's keep going. Verses 4 through 6, as the theme continues on. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord Yahweh, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. 
Now we're so he can keep going. Sorry, I was gonna say we're still dealing with God's omniscience here. I mean, yeah, His all knowingness, and I think that um, He does make a shift here from uh, just sort of knowing what He's doing, but now He's piercing deeper into the into our thoughts, into our heart, places where. You know, the average human thinks that they are certainly protected from other people knowing, you know, your deepest desires, your deepest thoughts, even the ones of which you're you're most certainly ashamed. And yet you are comforted only in knowing that no one will ever know what you're thinking. And then we have here, God knows even before we say anything, what we're thinking. And I would extend that to mean that he also knows even what we'll think before we do the thinking of it. And I think this has some interesting uh, implications for how we live our lives. Because even when we do say things, God knows. He knows uh, the implications and the motives that we have, the intentions we have for our words. So he knows us so well, and he's sifted us out so well that he's able to discern because of his omniscience everything there is about us. And so, verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And that, that's a language there that I was, I was kind of tra- trying to wrap my head around a little bit. Too wonderful. Um, what, what is he talking about? What are your thoughts? Well, I think this idea is, you know, the fact that no matter where he goes, God's knowledge or his ability to know, I should say, is there. He says, you hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand on me. So, so no matter where he goes, he can't go anywhere where God's knowledge of him doesn't envelop him, that hemming in language. Now, I still get the sense like, you know, is that good or bad? Is that law or gospel? You know, is David talking about how he wants to escape, but he's always surrounded by God? Or is he just praising God? And again, I think that depends. You know, hemming in is there's a comfort there. I kind of think of being tucked into a bed. There's this comfort. But on the other hand, you know, God's authority and control is always around us. And I think our our sinful natures despise it. But when we're redeemed, we also need it and desire it. So if you take all of that into account— when David reflects back on basically what he's just said, he says it's too wonderful. Not that, you know, it's 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 too good too much of a good thing, but rather that he just can't get his mind around the idea of God's omnipresence. He just can't it's too high. He can't attain it. He can't figure out how it is that God knows so much. And yet is it fatalistic? You know, does God's foreknowledge, his knowing all things mean that we don't have any freedom in the things that we say or do? They're 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 always they're already planned out. And and no, David knows that's not the case. He doesn't confuse God's foreknowledge with the fact that God knows all things and 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 pardon me, he doesn't confuse God's foreknowledge with the fact that we are able to make our own decisions throughout life, but he can't get his mind around kind of how that works. And neither can I. Oh yeah, <laughs> says, no one can. No one can, and that's where that's where we have to be careful 
is to look at this and not trying to get lost in the weeds because it's clear that David's not trying to give a whole understanding of of predestination. He's not trying to figure all that theology out within this psalm. He's simply praying, and it does give us a glimpse, but it still leaves us with the, I don't know exactly how that works, and then admitting, wow, there's so much of God we don't know, but not at the same time saying, therefore, we don't know anything. And I've heard that argument before where, oh, see, it's too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So therefore, you can never criticize my view of God. What would you have to say to that? Well, I think David would make a great Lutheran because he's <laughs> he's willing to just believe it. And when there is a paradox, he lets the paradox stand. He gives God credit for being you know, more knowledgeable than we are about how all of these things work. So yeah, in the same way, we Lutherans, um, with our emphasis on letting paradoxes stand, can't use those as cop-outs to not wrestle with the deep things of God or to try to seek answers if their answers can be found. But it recognizes that in some cases, the answers are simply not revealed to us. They're either too great for us to bear, we just wouldn't be able to understand it, God's God and we're us, or they're just not important for us to understand. Um, so, for instance, you know, predestination and those sorts of things are discussed elsewhere in the scriptures that gives us more insight. But that's not David's concern here. David's just pointing out the fact that God knows all things, and he thinks that's amazing. So as we get to our break, I want to read verses 7 through 12 and then come back after our break and to dig into that further. So we continue to hear. For where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So as we hear these words, right now we do have to take our break. We are studying and praying Psalm 139 with Pastor Phil Boo, and we'll be right back. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying and praying Psalm 139 with Pastor Phil Boo. And Pastor, we ended in verse 12, where basically it tells us, hey, you're going out, you're coming in. Uh, this is the reality. God will be with you the whole time. What are your thoughts? Well, when we get to verses 7 through 12, we have a, a, a focus not quite away from God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, uh, but now we're enveloping in God's omnipresence. There's a focus that 
the reality that God is is not does not only know everything, but He is everywhere, always, and so and that's what we see. And the very first verse of this section, verse seven, says, "Where shall I go from Your Spirit, or where shall I flee from Your presence?" And we've already discussed a little bit about you know is is this showing us that David's wanting to flee from God's presence, or is he praising? the inability to flee from God's presence. I think there's that law or gospel dynamic again. I mean, the connotation seems to lean towards the futility of David, you know, trying to hide himself from God. But I think, I think also he's simply praising God for the inability that we have to escape God's presence. Now, that sounds kind of strange, but we have to remember that, yes— we fear and and have awe of God because of his ability to bring wrath, but we love God because of the forgiveness and life that he brings. So it wouldn't be good for us if we were able to hide from God, thinking that we might, by doing so, avoid punishment, but rather avoiding God, if possible, would really just only cause us to avoid the salvation that he brings. And so I think that's the sense of the praise here. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Not as if he wants to, but, you know, it's a praise that God, again, is now everywhere. All right, so as we look at 9 and 10, we look at heaven, we see Sheol, we hear he's going over where we go. What's the next, what do you want to highlight next? Well, he's talking about, you know, where should he flee and that sort of thing. And the ultimate conclusion that we come to, as I've said, is that, you know, God is everywhere, omnipresent. But we also get from David these wonderful illustrations about just how pervasive God's presence is. And he gives us some hyperbolic examples, right? So he says about heaven and Sheol, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Is God in heaven? Well, yeah, check. What about the other direction? In Sheol, is God in the place of the dead that is even in our graves? Well, yeah. So these are visually opposites. Heaven is figuratively up, and Sheol is is down, and so therefore God is all the way up and all the way down. And then he continues this with this distinction between the morning and the seas. He says, if I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea— even there your hand shall lead me. And so we have a couple different ways of looking at this. The, the wings of the morning and the uttermost parts of the sea really also refer to visual opposites. The wings of the morning referring to the dawn or the east where the sun rises, and the utmost parts of the sea is figuratively west. And so we see God's presence is from heaven above to earth below, from east to west. God is everywhere. Of course, another way to look at this is taking the wings of morning is this sort of visual imagery of, of riding the light across the sky to dwell in the deepest parts of the sea. Even if you were to do that, David says, we couldn't hide from God. But he says about, you know, there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's presence isn't there to threaten us with the idea that he's always watching but rather a comfort to the redeemed who desire God's presence in order that he may guide us and lead us. 
And so this finishes up with 11 and 12. He says, surely the darkness shall cover me uh, the, and the light about me be night, if he says that. And then he continues, but even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Again, David's using these opposites to illustrate God's power. People do wicked things under the cover of darkness to hide their deeds, but, but David, you know, he reveals that hiding in the darkness is futile with God. Not only is God present in the darkness, but the darkness is as light to him. This makes me think of that obvious connection of Jesus being the light that breaks the darkness, the darkness not being able to overcome him. Or in First John 1, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And we could, of course, quote dozens of verses about darkness being a symbol for sin. But as we talked about earlier, I, I don't, I, you don't want to read too much into this. I think David's point is likely more literal than symbolic. We have trouble seeing in the darkness, but God sees everything. And that's a great way to look at that because we can easily turn it always when there's darkness that there's sin. Um, but the reality of it just is he sees everything. So when we can't see in the dark, he can see in the dark. We can't understand how, you know, we can be in the seas and he's there. We can be in the land and he's there. We can be sitting and he's there and we can be, you know, um, standing and he is there in the exciting times and in the down times, the, the momentous times, the, the plain times, all of those things come together, it's in, incomprehensible for us to totally understand this, like you said, this om, omniscience, omnipresent reality of God, and, and it points us to Christ being our Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So, Pastor, anything else on 7 through 12 before we move on? No, I think that's good. Okay, so let's move on. Now it gets personal, like you're saying. It gets really personal, I would argue. Verses 13 and we'll go through verse uh, 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So here, here's where the most commonly known part of Psalm 139 is proclaimed. And like I said, it's very personal. What do you have for this? Well, we're making that shift. So far he's talked about God's omnipotence or his, I'm sorry, his omniscience, his all-knowingness. We've talked about God's omnipresence. And now the next reviews these verses um, allude to God's omnipotence or his power, but not not independently. David sh- just combines. He shows us by combining all of God's all-knowing and all-present abilities with, uh, the, with his power. And the, and the example that he wants to use to demonstrate God's power is the ability to bring forth life itself. And again, yes, you said it's, it's been personal. And because this psalm has been so personal, we should understand that this is David reflecting on God's providence to give him life. And when we meditate on it, we should think specifically about the God who loves us enough to bring us into this world. Groups like Lutherans for Life and other life-affirming Christian groups, they cling to these verses, and for good reason, because they're beautiful illustrations of how God is, is personal 
and and he's involved in the creation of each life. That that vivid imagery here takes takes what happens at conception and it connects it with God's hand in Eden when he first formed human beings. Now we believe life begins at conception because God's work to give us life begins there. And here David is just reflecting on that and acknowledging it. So of all the amazing and wonderful works of God, including the creation of the universe that David could have used to praise God for his power, he uses this seemingly tiny, delicate act of knitting us together in our mother's wombs as the thing to praise him for, which I just, I think is, is amazing. And so he goes on to say, you know, you formed my inward parts. Now this verse is, sounds very nice in the English. Funny enough, though, the, the word inward parts here in the Hebrew specifically refers to the kidneys. So the original sense is that God's holding his kidneys, but the kidneys are just symbolic of those deep-seated organs that, you know, you can't access or even really sense from the outside of the body. So David knows they're there, of course, and they're operating, and there's that mystery combined in that even his inward parts were put together by God. We can't see them. We can't access them, especially, you know, in David's day. But, but God is able to knit all those together. And what's really neat is that by the time we get to verse uh, 14, David kind of takes a break. He, he's describing how God has knitted him together. And then he just says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. He takes a moment to praise God for the for the amazing thing that uh, the amazing power that God has exercised in bringing David into the world. And, and then he continues with that with that very common, very wonderfully quoted verse about um, being fearfully and wonderfully made. And the reflection I have on this is just that, you know, the complexity of, of, of a human life is still something that we cannot replicate. We'll never be able to. I mean, sure, using the means God's given us, you know, science can replicate a human in a fairly artificial way, but, but humans are powerless to do what God can do. And I think that's, that's pretty amazing. Now, Pastor, I wanted to ask about that very quickly because we live in this tension or maybe paradox, like you said before, of, yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And this is a, 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 a proclamation we should have all the time to every Christian person, every person that the Lord has fearfully and wonderfully made them. At the same time, we're not perfect. And kind of that saying of, you, you know, you you don't want to stay where you're at, you know, God, God's not done with you yet, or that kind of language. We understand that we are indeed sinful and unworthy of anything that he gives and broken people. How do you live in that tension of, yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. At the same time, we know that we are indeed a sinner deserving no grace whatsoever. How do you live in that tension? What would you tell somebody? Right. Well, being fearfully and wonderfully made does not mean that you're made perfectly. And that may seem scandalous if we're talking about God being the one who has his hand in making us, but we know and we recognize that our lives, our health, uh, sin, disease, um, all of the things that we experience are a result of the fall. So to be fearfully and wonderfully made in the context that David's talking about it, that is in the context of God being uh, all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful, is to recognize that 
we are pretty fragile beings. If you've ever taken care of uh, of an infant, and I know you have as a father, um, you know the you especially your first one, the first few weeks, if not months, you basically spend peeking your head in just to make sure they're still breathing, make sure they're still alive, and and there's sort of this wonder about man how does all this work i mean we can scientifically explain it but the reality is how do we get from sperm and egg to this wonderful baby and then it just it just works and for and for a lot of the people in the world if not most you know this just continues your heart just keeps beating until the lord takes you generally later on in life now there are exceptions and these are of course all products of the fall which is why we have that fear and that wonder. And so all of these things, whether it be um, you know, the, the lack of perfection in our bodies or the lack in, of perfection in our behavior and faith, all reminds us of just what David is saying here, that God's the one we have to rely upon. He's the one who, who holds even our kidneys in his hands. And so our faith, hope, and trust is not in ourselves, but in the one who did create us and causes us to uh, recognize it as being fearful and wonderful. Might add a new blessing at the end of church that, and may he keep you safe in the kidneys of his hands. Um, something along those lines. I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure how that works. That doesn't your, work very well. May he keep your kidneys in his hands. Yeah, I like <laughs> there that. There you go. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> so it, he goes into further language about uh, my frame is not hidden from you, uh, made in secret, the depths of the earth. What is he capturing there? What are your thoughts? Well, this is pretty confusing language because he goes from words we understand, knitting together in my mother's womb, and probably because we quote that a lot. Um, but you don't often see on Lutherans for Life pamphlets the words intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So, and that's because it's a, uh, it's a, uh, symbolic. It's it's kind of cryptic. So my frame's not hidden from you. David is connecting, you know, all of God's qualities of creating life, and nothing is hidden from God's knowledge or his presence or his power. But then when we get to this language of secret, then that refers to knowledge that we don't have. God keeps it secret. And so this is particularly true during David's time, he has no he knows where babies come from but he has no idea how they're made and uh it's so within the body this is in a in a dark place in a secret place in this womb it's like a tomb we don't know what's going on in there and even today with our great advances in technology we may be able to describe uh, using our limited language what happens throughout all the weeks of pregnancy but do we really know? Do we really understand? Even if we're able to describe it down to the cells themselves dividing and down to the DNA replicating, we still can't cause that to happen outside of God's hand. And so um, the more knowledge we have, the more we just recognize how pitiful we are in comparison to God's ability to do these great things. And so we have this idea of the depths of the earth. Now, the earth's weird. That's a weird language. But that's connecting us to how he created the first man. He created uh, Adam out of the Adam. You know, he created him out of the dust, out of the earth. And so in this symbolic way, every time God's hands are at work creating us in our mother's wombs, we're connected to that very first human being. And so we're all connected together. 
So while this has been a very personal, very private type of uh, of, of praise and, and petition and lament in a minute, it, it also recognizes that we are all interconnected to one another. And then it... it, it and really, I like how you're how you're how you're laying this out for us because it is less confusing than it first seems. Because we get too um, in, in in poetry, which is this is we get too too much into the you know you can't look at every single word as exactly what it says, um, but you have to look at it the symbolism, um, the deeper meaning to this, and then we get to verse sixteen and it gets even more crazy. You're like, wait a second, your eyes saw my unformed substance. How would you answer uh, somebody who asks a question about that? Well, God knows just what we'll say before we say it. He's already made that. David's already mentioned that. And God knows us, therefore, even before he brings us into the world. Now, I think that's—if if we were surprised, if we were found it profound that, that God knows what we're going to think before we think it and what we're going to say before we say it, even better than we do, then now we're just blown away by this insistence by David, and he's talking to God, so he's not, you know— trying to be um, uh, hyperbolic here, he's saying, you knew me before you even did all of these things that I said you're going to do, before you formed my inward parts, before you knitted me together. That's amazing enough, but you knew me even before uh, you did those things. And so what implications does that have for our, our recognition of the value of life? You know, he goes on to talk about the book he talks about you know um pardon me he says that uh pardon me so he mm -hmm. says that your eyes saw my own form sums and then he said in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me so he just compounds this amazing statement about knowing us before we're even conceived to saying that you have this foreknowledge represented by the book, something that we can't even grasp or understand, and that you know the days of our life, you know, the, you, it, all the days that were formed for me, this has a lot of implications. Mm -hmm. one, one scholar said, you know, it's as if God has a, a book, figuratively, um, and he has all the pages for our life in there. He knows exactly you know, the, our trajectory, but the pages are blank because we fill them up as we go. Now, I think that's very imperfect because it kind of suggests that God doesn't know, and he does, but, but what he's trying to wrestle with is just what David's wrestling with, this idea that how do we connect God's divine foreknowledge with the idea that we have some freedom of will, even though it's in bondage, we have this freedom of will. And so what we see here is David just lays it out. He says that he just believes it. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance before you even started taking, making me in the womb, and, uh, and you know all the days of my life. And he just takes comfort in that instead of dwelling on it. And that's where there's two ways of looking at this. One, terrifying. He even knew me before I was in a twinkle in my parents' eyes kind of kind right. of language, and that he knows the, the history that we have. And we don't fully understand that, of course. Um, 
that can be quite terrifying as we as we talked about knowing our ins and outs and everything else in between but also it allows us to say okay all right god you're god i'm not and to allow us to say okay i'm going to listen to you because you know everything i can't hide anything from you um and i know you're gracious and forgiving and and everything else that this is my time to to allow myself to follow you instead of myself and that, that that's where to me that's comforting because i well okay i give up god you're in control of all this which i find myself doing a lot in my life is allowing him to take the steering wheel not as much as i should no doubt about it but you realize that more and more as we age. So, Pastor, anything else on those verses before we move on? Well, only to say that uh, David agrees with you, because in the next verses, if I could just read them, verse Please 17 do. verse seventeen is, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. So he, if, if we're wondering, is he terrified by this, or is, he, is, this, is this praise? It, it is praise. How precious to me are your thoughts. Now, I'm certainly there, are, certainly there are occasions in David's life where there are they're more frightening, but not in this instance. And he continues, if I could count them, they are more than the sand. So they're precious and numerous. And then comes a really enigmatic sentence. Then he says, I am awake and I am still with you. Now, I bring this up because the other two are pretty self-explanatory, but that line's very strange. Um, he's just going on, he's recounting for, for 18 verses about, all the wonders of God, and he, and he all culminates in him, you know, reflecting on how God had created him. And then suddenly he just writes, I'm awake and I'm still with you. <laughs> and, and, and some scholars believe that David simply fell asleep. He fell asleep while he's writing this and he awoke, you know, still inspired by the words or still inspired by the Lord. Others have suggested that David literally fainted or was just entranced by the thoughts and then suddenly came to and said, oh, I'm still here. I have to admit, I have no idea. I have no idea what is exactly meant by that. But I really want to believe that David fell asleep <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it shows this humanity of David that that as he's writing these things, just as if we're maybe praying at night and we fall asleep and we fall asleep in the Lord. And when we wake up, God hasn't left us. He's still there. He's still there. Well, and there's that reality of how often, and you just kind of said it, how often have we prayed and fallen asleep while we pray? Right. And so we envision David just flowing through these Psalms you know, wide, you know, wide awake, bright eyed and bushy tailed the whole time. And no, he's a real human being. So I do like that explanation. We still don't really fully know, no. but we do have a, a feel that he definitely um, was a human being as he wrote this. So pastor, we have about five minutes left in our time. And so I want to read the rest of, read and pray the rest of Psalm 139 and get your thoughts as we move forward. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there are any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Well, I think now reading 19 through 24 again, now I realize he probably did fall asleep, wake up and had a whole different tone on his heart. So what, what are your thoughts on those last uh, very uh, explicit verses? 
Well, that's what I was about to say. Boy, David sure woke up, didn't he? <laughs> he, uh, he? He does. There's a big shift in tone here. And so much so that some scholars become suspicious of the lines. They'll say things like, you know, oh, well, did David write these or they don't belong here? Uh, I think that's a little spurious. In consideration, you know, David has just been recounting all the wonders of God. He's been praising God throughout this psalm, and now he has petitions. But you notice his petitions are actually still consistent with what he's been talking about in terms of God's power. Because it's not though it's not as though David's gone on for 18 verses about how great God is, and now that he's buttered God up, he wants to ask him for wealth and riches and stuff. No, he's he's sincerely reflected on the amazing attributes of God, and then he recognizes that, wait a minute, there are people who, despite uh, God's uh, wonders, still reject him. There are people that still hate God. He, he talks about... He talks about how, you know, there are people who who blaspheme God. He calls them wicked and bloodthirsty. They speak wickedly against him, use his name in vain. So so David, in light of these people, prays what we call imprecatory psalms or an imprecatory prayer. And this is about David calling down God's judgment on the wicked and the enemies of of God. This isn't necessarily David calling down, you know, judgment on his own enemies, although that happens too, but but David is is calling for vindication of God. Now, imprecatory psalms aren't a new thing. They aren't they aren't even unusual. There are some examples like for instance in Psalm 10, pardon me, Psalm 5, verse 10. You know, it says declare them guilty, O God, let their intrigues be their downfall, banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. In Psalm 17, rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down with your sword and rescue me from the wicked. In Psalm 79, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, etc., etc. So imprecatory psalms, which is sort of what this has turned into here at the end, aren't about calling down God to do violence to your enemies. They may seem like that on their face, but they're a call for God to exercise his judgment and deliver justice because, you know, God's the one who judges and he's the one who gets to punish. And if that wasn't as surprise, it wasn't surprising enough, then David uses the H word, which, you know, people, people hate the H word. <laughs> people hate the word hate. <laughs> they, they, you know, this idea that, I you know I do I not Lord hate those who you hate and loathe those who rise up against you I hate them with complete hatred I count them as enemies David isn't confessing those things David is saying look at me God look at all the people I hate I hate all the right people Now that what do we do here you know is David seeking his own revenge or is he just trying to get that vindication for God He's just meditated on how amazing God is, and yet there are people who reject God and blaspheme him. So, you know, I, I like to give David the benefit of the doubt and say that he is standing up for God in these verses. Now, the question is, is David's behavior here something we should emulate? Or is it, as you've mentioned several times, David just being a regular person, a vulnerable outburst? 
you know, if, if he's gotten worked up to the point where he's either fainted or fallen asleep, but if he's gotten worked up over how amazing God is and it occurs to him that there are these people out there that mock God, well, who haven't, who among us hasn't been in that situation where we really want to see God's vindication? If nothing else, we want people to see that, that God is real and, and he, is, he is righteous and all-powerful. Jesus speaks of hate. You know, he talks about if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children, you know, that is hate those things that keep you away from me. It's a hard saying, but but God does hate sin. He detests it. He takes it very seriously. He wants us to take it seriously, too, both in ourselves, but also in others. Now, so when it comes to whether this is just a vulnerable outburst of David or whether it's something we should emulate— I think it's interesting that David concludes all of this by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That is, we might not fully know the motivations behind David's words here, but maybe David doesn't either. Maybe this is just his natural emotional expression, and so he ends the whole psalm, and especially this part of the psalm, with this, Examine me, O Lord, and if there be any grievance way in me, grievous way in me, well, then lead me in the way of everlasting. He's he's reaching out to God to expose his sins and lead him to repentance. And so maybe that's a clue. Maybe that's a clue that David wrote these words, and they're real and they're genuine, but he wants God to be the ultimate judge of whether he's done right or wrong. With about a minute left here, Pastor, how would you summarize this wonderful psalm? Well, I think the psalm is that wonderful. It gives us an insight into the humanity of David. It gives us an insight into those three omni-attributes of God that all Christians should know. And it also gives us words for ourselves. As we encounter loneliness or as we find ourselves content with our sins or, or a variety of different things, just like most of the psalms, you know, here are words for us to be able to use, to reach out to God in prayer, and, uh, and, and us join in with, with David at the very end, lead me in the way of everlasting. It all comes back to Jesus Christ, who is the way of everlasting life, and through whom alone we know that uh, we have nothing to worry about, and that God can be with us always, and uh, we find joy in that. Reverend Dr. Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota, helping us to pray Psalm 139. Pastor Boo, thank you again for giving us his gifts. Thank you for having me. Saints of our Lord, he knitted you together, and in Christ you are fearfully and wonderfully made. In him we can trust that he leads us, and as Pastor said at the end, to the way of everlasting life in Christ. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.